You say, come Holy Spirit. There is such, such, such good news today. You are the King, Jesus. You are on the throne, Jesus, and we trust you. So today we just rejoice and we sing and we worship and we clap and it is good to be in your kingdom. So we pray things in the King Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone stand up before we sit. I'm going to read the scripture before we sit down real fast. We're going to start with this because I want to get some words in your mind before we get going. So I'm not going to talk about this for just a couple minutes, all right? So if you would with me, read the Lord's words. Our passage comes from uh, 1 Peter 4, chapter 12 through 19. It says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinners? So if you are suffering... In a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. This is the reading of God's word. Have a seat. So I've been thinking a bunch. I, you know, I don't get to preach that often, so I have a lot of time to think. And I'm really excited about this morning. So before we get going, uh, I've been thinking about exile a lot. And I've been learning a lot. And one of the cool things about the Bible is that they have these themes that run all the way through the Bible. But the thing is, there's all these different stories in the Bible. And so we, oftentimes we zero into a story, but we don't, we don't recognize that there's this theme that's playing through all the stories in all different ways. It's almost as if the writers of the Bible are saying, you might not get this one, you might get this one. You don't get this one, well, how about this one? So like with exile, which is a theme of the whole Bible, Adam and Eve are exiled. Cain and Abel, Abraham and Sarah, uh, the Israelites, Jesus was exiled. People, the, the church is exiled. It's this theme that runs all the way through. So sometimes we need to hear the story a little bit differently. Some of us, we all just think differently. That's really cool the Holy Spirit thought of that, right? So when I think of exile, this is how I imagine exile. I played sports growing up, a lot of sports. Exile to me is a road game. So when I was growing up, when you're at home, you don't have to play that well, but you got momentum, you got a home crowd, like you can, a couple plays can turn the tide. But when you're on the road, oh, it's way different. So one of my favorite places to play in college, I played at Drake University, which was at Southern Illinois, which is in Carbondale. For whatever reason, if you're from Carbondale, I apologize. It was always rainy and dreary and just, it was not a fun place. And we always got our butts kicked. But so going to play in Carbondale, as we would show up to play the game, right, we had this little remnant of blue walking into a sea of maroon. And what made Southern Illinois so good was their defense was incredible. They were physical. Top defense in the country, year after year after year. And what, they just pushed you all game. They pushed you and they pushed you hands on. Physical, 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 physical. So for the whole week leading up to the game, we would practice getting fouled. We actually would practice getting fouled. There were no fouls called in practice. Guys were coming to blows in practice. We're getting ready for this game. It's so physical. It's on the court. It was hard. And when you go on the road, I was always told by my dad, you better be 10 points better on the road than you are at home. It's hard to win on the road. It's challenging. 
So you're in this game, and you know on the court it's going to be hard, right? But then it's not just on the court. At Carbondale, I was so annoyed. The crowd was relentless. So as I walked in, the first I ever walked into Southern Illinois' gym, a ball boy met me and said, they're waiting for you. My older brother had played there a few years before, and he was pretty good. They were waiting for you, they said. I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> so these fans, they love their team, and not all do this. Some just cheer, but some would question your integrity. They question your ability. They not even question it. They, they actually say you don't have any. They compare you to people. They make you feel really bad and really small. So on the court, it's physical. It's a hard game. You're not getting any calls from referees. And then you have thousands of people screaming at you, saying all kinds of things to you. Exile is a road game. So how do you win a road game? Well, I was thinking about this. I think about our passage a little bit. Uh, you have to be like-minded. You got to be on the same page. You got to know the playbook. You got to know what we're fighting for, what we're doing together. It's road game on the same page. You got to be sober. You got to be alert. Can't hear anything. Where's my teammates? I have to trust my teammates. I, I know they're going to be where they're supposed to be. Exile is a road game. Then I had this last thought about playing on the road. There's a right way to play the game. I, I thought all game, all game, you're fighting, 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 fighting. But if you play the right way, if when the referee calls a foul on you, I was always told, you raise your hand. I submit to the authority of the referee. He called a foul on me. I agree. I disagreed a lot, but I always raised my hand, right? <laughs> always raised my hand. Sometimes it was faster or it was fine, you know, but I raised my hand because I'm submitting to the referee. He's in charge. I'm playing really hard. I knock someone over. What do I do? I pick him up. Someone makes a really tough shot against me. What do I say? Man, tough shot, which always caught people off guard. Thanks. I don't know. But if you play the game the right way, at the end of the game, what happens? Everyone leaves feeling like, man, we came in as enemies, but I kind of like playing against you. It's kind of fun to play against you. It was a good game. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm, we always lost there. So they're always glad they won. So exile is a road game. So it's different because we know who wins. But to me, exile is a road game. So that's my thoughts. I hope that helps someone here today. If not, it helps me. So I apologize. What I'd like to do before, as we get started, though, is before we get into our text, I'm not sure if you heard the words I emphasized in, when I was reading, but I want to go back actually to Tim's text last week, because it's fascinating to me, that at the end of Tim's text last week, the letter almost ends. There's a doxology and an amen. So in it, it says this, um, let's see, then everything you do, what, what is everything? It's being in exile. It's submitting, it's suffering, it's serving, it's blessing. While all those things happen, everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, there it is again, and power forever and ever. What does glory mean right here? So I, I, I emphasize in the passage too, but it's a little different. But here, glory is a term of measurement. So how you are in exile brings more glory. So the other day I asked Alan Fodenhauer in here, I said, Alan, what in here can I measure? He said, well, a couple things, I guess. But one is there's a microphone, actually, it's right here. Here's the microphone. And it measures the sound in the room. I was like, oh, that's interesting, because you can measure that. I said, that's cool. So I'm going to ask, I have an ask. We had a kind of a, a rambunctious group this morning, I like it. Are there two or three people who would be willing to look at the microphone and, and, and say the word Jesus loudly? Would anybody do that? Would anyone do it? One, perfect. Anyone else? One's perfect. All right. Everyone be quiet, and we're going to see how loud it is, okay? So look at the microphone and yell Jesus. Jesus! 
We might not be able to beat him. That was really good. Wow. Well done. Well done. Well done. So it's, it's measurable. So how we do this thing brings more glory. So I thought if one or two people say Jesus' name, it's measurable. What were you at? Can you tell me a number? Okay, I'm not sure what that means, but I think that's lower. If the whole room were to look at the microphone with me right now and say the name Jesus, would we do that? We in? All right, ready? One, two, three. Jesus! It was higher. See? More glory. It's, it's a measurable thing. So in exile, if we do these things really well, like Jesus, more volume, more glory is given to God in these things. Fascinating, right? But then it says amen. It, where I come from, when you sing the doxology and it says amen, we're done. I shouldn't even be here today. Letter's over. For some reason, Peter's like, no, it's not over. Why not? I think because Peter knows this is really hard stuff. He's almost like, I got to... Now, we're going to have to talk about this one more time. i, I got to go back one more time to make sure that you understand. So I've had this thought about giving more glory, being in exile. I hear all the time how much everyone just despises the year 2020. Your 2020 is so bad. Can't we just get to 2021? Can't we just leave this year and go to the next year? I mean, that's pretty fair. It's been a pretty crummy year. I would, I've had some pretty crummy years before this, though. And who knows what 2021 is going to be like. But my problem with that statement is knowing how hard it is is when all you can think about is how do you get out of this place, you miss everything inside of it. And if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, there's this passage in Romans that says that God can use everything. He can use everything for good. Not everything is good, but he can use it for good. So that idea that I have to get out of this year is contrary to what this says. This says I have to be present in this year, in this day, right now, at this time. It matters. So can I ask you, would you be present today? Cool? All right, I had another story, but I'm going to skip it. So what I want to focus in on is the word glory. So again, so glory, there's glory. It was a term measurement. Glory is used again in, in, uh, in our passage today. So I want to look at this, at this text from two different ways. The word glory and is my presence good? So why, 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 why is that my question? Well, glory means it's God's presence. It's his, it's his weight. It's when he is in the room, like something, all the things that he is comes in. So I, I imagined, as I was sitting here this morning early, this room is a glass container, okay? It's filled to the brim with water. And I imagined a crane, a wrecking crane ball, dropping through the ceiling into this huge container of water. It's filled to the brim. And I learned this. I'm not, I was not very good in school, but it will displace its, um, its weight. So when the presence of God comes, it displaces everything that is not good. So as I'm reading this, to be in exile, to, have a, to, have, to be able to do it well, it all depends on our ability, our, our, our knowing that his glory, his presence, he is going to descend to earth. We're not parachuting out of here. He's going to come here. How did you say, tell us to pray? Your kingdom come here. So he's going to come here. So we can do exile if we understand that, his glory, his weight, his presence. So it got me thinking, if that's his presence, his presence is good. It displaces what is not good. When I'm around, do I do that? Do I displace what is not good? Do I carry that presence with me? A better way to say is, just what's it like when I'm around? What's it like when you're around? What's it like when we are around? When Christians People who really love Jesus are around. What's it like? Is our presence good?
That's my question. Those two things. And we're just going to work through the text. I was going to tell you what I'm going to do in each one. I decided not to. You're going to try to tell me what you think is in the text, okay? So the first one, um, let's see here. We're going to start in verse 12. It says this. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised. And I'm going to read each time because I think it's really important that we get these words into our heads and our hearts. I'm just going to keep reading it. So I'm just going to keep reading from the Bible, okay? Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory, when his presence, when who he is, is revealed. So I just, I tell you, as I've been sitting with this, I've been thinking for long hours about what it means to not be surprised. What does that mean? Because in my mind, when I'm not surprised about a bad situation, I become pessimistic. I'm assuming the worst always. I go on Google, I look at the first five hits because they're always the worst ones that can happen to you, right? And I assume all those things are me. How do I not, how can I not be surprised and not be pessimistic in our world today? That's, that's a hard thing to do. So I, obviously, I thought of what Prince Humperdinck said to Princess Buttercup and, and, and the Princess Bride, <laughs> that life is pain, Highness. Anything, anyone who's telling you differently is just lying to you. They're trying to sell you something. You know, that's what popped my mind, and I love that movie. So, but how do we not do that? How, how are we not like Prince Humperdinck? That we just assume that life, all of life is pain. Life is pain. But how, we, how is that not just our mindset? It's funny, I was thinking about Tim Sex last week. Um, he said that uh, uh, when, when you become a Christian, you start following Jesus, you become different. So all of your friends are surprised that you're different. They're surprised. Now, this week he says, now, when hard things come, then don't you be surprised. It seems to be a logical thought to me. You're different now. You're not going to live the same way. So don't be surprised when they're mad at you or they're frustrated with you or when something doesn't go the way you want. Like, don't be surprised. So I thought, though, I'm always looking for biblical examples of what it means to be this kind of person. So I think that this is a particular kind of presence, okay? And there's two stories I want to tell quickly. One's about a guy named Daniel. It's not the lion's den. And one's about a guy named Jesus. They both had this unusual presence but not being surprised. So Daniel, uh, if you remember at the very beginning of talking about exile in Jeremiah, he said, you'd be for your city. You have, to be, you have to become a part of it. And when you become a part of it, it's going to flourish. So if, if it flourishes, you flourish. So, so you have a vested interest in Babylon, in the most evil city in the whole entire world, before it. Daniel listened to him. So Daniel said, all right, I'll do that. He worked his way up. He's in the highest forms of government. He was so high that he got put over, over top of province. So he's overseeing a whole area. Instead of going to that area because he's a part of the king's court, so this is a powerful guy, he puts three of his friends in charge. If you know their names, they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's this point in time, and I don't know how you do this. I'm still trying to figure it out. They were for the city. They were for people. They loved people. At different times, they would draw the line. So I won't do that one, though. So there's a story where the king erects uh, a huge idol and says, everyone's going to bow down and worship him. If you don't, I'll kill you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of the highest people in government, don't bow down. And this is their response. They say this to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing, which is a fiery furnace, know that in our text, a fiery furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. 
These are men who are for, they are for them. They are for this, the, the flourishing. They say, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. I, I, in my mind, I'm trying to figure out, where do I, where are those lines exactly? But what a loving, in my mind, a loving way to say, that's too far. I'm with you, but I'm not with you there. First story. Second one. I was thinking of Jesus. Jesus is always in hairy situations. He always had angry people. And someone's mad at him. So I was reading a book the other day, because I'm about to talk to our mixed group soon. And uh, they brought up the, the, young, the woman who's caught in adultery. So I'm, imagine this situation. So I'm trying to think, what kind of, we're talking about presence. Is my presence good? So Daniel's presence, his friend's presence, was it good? Yeah, it was. Jesus' presence, is it good? So you have a woman caught in adultery, which... I, you know, just a woman's brought before him. She thinks she's going to be stoned to death. She's probably not wearing a lot, a lot of clothing. You have a whole angry, fiery mob. People are, you see what you see on TV recently? All these riots, all these things are going, whatever's going on. Imagine a group of people running at you who are angry with a near naked person who thinks she's going to die and gets thrown at your feet. What's Jesus' response? He writes something in the sand. Who knows what he writes? You know, Jesus said that he would, uh, before he would speak, he would he'd check in with the Father first. He'd ask him. He'd speak what the Father told him. I wonder if Jesus was praying. You know, Jesus was God and man, right? He was both. And he says, whoever, whoever hasn't sinned, you throw the first stone. Whew. Situation dispelled. Jesus did that all the time. That's the presence of my God. What's my presence like? And so what I can't, what I'm thinking is, what kind of presence do they have? It's a non-anxious presence. So I imagine myself, imagine yourself, when you come into a room, when you come into a room with people, no matter what situation it is, when you come in, what happens? Does anxiety drop? <sighs> okay. Or is it heightened? Is it more? They're more nervous. I'm doing a check on myself. If people are more anxious, whose presence am I bringing with me? Who have I been filled by? Who am I like? So what I see in the text here, it's about presence, is that our God, that what Peter's saying here is you need to have Christians, don't be surprised. Have a non-anxious presence. And if Jesus, if Jesus prayed and asked how to handle a situation, I should probably do the same thing. Okay? That's one. Two, as we're moving through the text, next part. So we have a non-anxious presence. Is my presence good? That's the question. I wrote this down. Suffering is the great equalizer. Here's the text. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Hmm. If you suffer, it shouldn't be doing for, 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 for doing bad things. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. So I had this thought. No one will not suffer. We will all suffer. There's suffering for everyone. Suffering paints with a broad brush. I watch the news. Evil doesn't seem to pick, really care who it is. There's just evil everywhere. I think sometimes we as people think that we have the corner on the market of suffering. It's harder for me. It's not as hard for you. I have the worst. So we either minimize, we either maximize our suffering, which is, becomes a part of who we are. It becomes my identity. We can minimize our suffering. If like, we don't have the right to suffer, we shouldn't suffer. They have it way worse than me. Uh, or, uh, but, where was I going? Yeah, I lost my place. Oh, yeah, so suffering. Suffering's for everyone, okay? But suffering's not what we think it is, always. 
But I thought about this. So in, uh, in the creation story, right? So why do we suffer? Why is there suffering? Well, when God created the world, uh, he said it was good. So God created an ordered world. There was order in the world. Then when humans, like me, chose to redefine good and evil, right and wrong, when I thought I should make the decisions, I should be like God, there became disorder. So now, the disorder we all live with, the chaos we see, is a result of my, I can't speak for you, decisions. That was our decision. Disorder. So I thought to myself, it's not just disease and disasters, and it's like the big things we think of when it comes to suffering. But suffering's not always a big thing. I, uh, I, what's worse, losing someone you love in a second or a broken relationship for life? I don't know. We oftentimes, we grade suffering, and we don't give our permission, ourselves permission to actually deal with it. There's a guy I read about. His name was Jerry, and uh, he had a really hard situation. People say it to him all the time. That's what he would say. I don't know what's worse. But in the beginning of his suffering, in the beginning of working through it, he was, someone in his life saw that he was just drowning. He was just exhausted. I said, Jerry, this is my, my thought. I said, right now, you're chasing the sun. I said, the problem with chasing the sun is that it's moving away from you. The earth is spinning the other way. You're never going to catch the sun. You're never going to get there. So what they said was you have to do is, is you have to Stop. Said so you have to turn this way. And I will go with you. That's what we're supposed to do together. And we will walk through the darkness together. Because guess what? The sun's come on the other side. But we have to, we have to, everyone's got to wrestle, deal with this idea of life is messed up. Life is not good for everyone. That's the way life is. There's a lot of really good things, but it gets hard for everyone, right? Can I get an amen? Is life hard? I mean, I feel like COVID hasn't, hasn't chosen a certain group of people that they, that they dislike more than us. I think it's affecting everybody a lot. There's a lot of evil. So, what is our response? The passage says this. So then, those who suffer according to uh, God's will should commit themselves to their faithful career. We have to continue to do good. Why do we have to continue to do good? Well, I had this thought, because God is good. All the time. All the time. Every day. There are good things in the midst of everything. Right before that, I missed it. It said, if it's this hard for the righteous, if it's this hard for people who know who Jesus is, who know the future glory is coming, if it's this hard for you to do life. So what about everybody else? What about someone who does not know who Jesus is? What about someone who has no hope? Well, if someone who watched someone die says, I don't know where they're going. Their life is just over. There's nothing else. What about them? So when I think about suffering for me, when I think about what I've had to live with, back to my analogy to be in the game, how I play the game matters. People have to see hope. People have to see a non-anxious presence. How we respond to it lets someone think, well, maybe there's a different way. Right? Is it just, am, am, am I missing something? I think like I'm getting some nods. I think some people are with me. Okay. What my favorite, my favorite explanation of the gospel right now is this. God is in charge, and you can trust him. I say to myself all the time, because most of the time I don't trust him. God is in charge. 
And Clayton, you can trust him. So I don't know what people have going on today. I don't know what you're walking in with. What's hard for you? Suffering can be stuff like broken relationships. It can be loneliness, depression. It can be harsh words. There's just all this. We all have this. But God is in charge. And we can trust him. And when we trust something, we have hope in something. So when people see that you have hope, that you have a non-anxious presence in the midst of things, they have to think, what do you have that I don't have? I was struck by, uh, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, think about non-anxious presence. Think about having a hopeful presence. Is my presence good? In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says that uh, you have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope of what you have. You have to be prepared to give an answer. So that means that someone has to ask you a question. Right? So in my mind, I think I've always thought I have to just be going and just be telling people about Jesus, which I think you do. But quite often, it does not get met with, with good, a good reception. They have to see something so different inside me, inside you, inside of all of us. They think, what is going on with you? They have to ask you a question, says Peter. Then you have to be ready to give an answer for the hope with which you have. So I read this story about this guy. Um, his name is uh, Father Maximilian Kolbe. Father Kolbe was in uh, World War II. He was in Auschwitz. And uh, when he was there, there was uh, a person escaped. And so the Nazi guards decided that they were going to make an example. So they were going to starve 10 people to death. So this is what will happen if you try to escape. If you try to get out of this place, this is what's going to happen to you. Father Kolbe was not one of the ones who got asked or got selected to be, to, to, to be killed. But he asked if he could. He asked if he could take someone's place. So he did. They starved him for 14 days. He didn't die. So they killed him. But here's what people said in the camp about him. They said this. Colby's willingness to die a horrible death for the sake of someone not even related to him filled the camp with hope that darkness would ultimately not prevail. And then I said this. Thousands of, uh, thousands of prisoners were convinced the true world continued to exist and that our torturers would never be able to destroy it. To say that Father Colby died for that person's family or for us is too great of a simplification. His death was a salvation of thousands. We were stunned by his act, which came from a mighty explosion of light in a dark camp. Suffering ceases to only be suffering at the moment, it finds its meaning. Until that point, if you have no hope, that's it. If you have hope, there is meaning and there's more. So I thought this was good because I don't live there. That's not my life. But a person said this. You actually honor his sacrifice when you allow his story to impact your story right here. Don't have to be just like him. That's what we do at the Bible all the time. We think we have to be like the Bible character. Most of the time, you shouldn't be like the Bible character. These are some bad things. But you have to let their story impact your story. I think what I'm struck by is uh, we are stunned by his act, which came from a mighty explosion of light within the dark camp. An explosion of light. 
So I just had this aha as I'm reading this. Why do I have to keep doing good things in the midst of all these things? I think because God continues to do good things to me. So I reflect his presence. Not an anxious presence, hopeful presence. And I reflect him. So the band can, can, can come up. I'm just going to tell one more story. So I had a day there. Uh, I was at my kitchen sink washing dishes. And for those of you who don't know, I had a younger brother who passed away a couple years ago. And a song came on the radio. I got so sad. And sometimes I really like to be sad. I do. I'm so sad. But talking about having hope, the craziest thing happened, because I was ready to settle in. I heard the Spirit, I think the Holy Spirit, alerted my ears to my wife and my little girls laughing and playing. And I just got infused with life. And I dropped the dishes. I ran up the stairs. I just played and laughed. We as Christians have this really unique thing. We're in the midst of sorrow. I'm convinced the more sorrow, the more joy he gives us. It's just the weirdest times. It doesn't make any sense. I continue to do good. I'm asked to continue to do good because my God continues to be good to me. I, the song we're going to sing here in a second, if you need a reminder, listen to the song. Play it all week. So I'm just thinking if, if, if how I live, how I play the game, everything I do brings more glory. I was thinking about, you know, I was about a road game earlier. This is a home game right here in this moment. This is a home game. There is momentum. We are here to worship together. People who are like-minded, we're on the same page. So if I can't worship in this setting, how am I going to worship out there? How, how is it going to translate if I can't do it right here? So I don't know what worship looks like for you. I'm not sure what you're comfortable with or not comfortable with. But my thought today is let's let her rip. Let, let's worship. Let's raise the volume. Let's, add, let's give him more glory today because God is good. He is always good all the time. He doesn't quit. What a unique God. We want him to remove us from something? No, he doesn't do it. He parachutes in and walks with us. He holds our hand. He walks all the way through. I don't know of any other religion whose God came from wherever he was to come down to die for the people that are supposed to believe in him. No one, no one does that. We're so selfish. Not our God. Come on. Let's pray. I, I say, come Holy Spirit. Would you convict? Would you move? Would you empower? Would you just, would you just give us your life today? Would, you, would we worship? We worship you because we have so much to worship. You are so good. Amen.